This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with the next installment from our Live Israel podcast tour series. This week was a real treat for me because although we're releasing this here in late November, I actually recorded this interview on my first day in Israel, my first morning there, and the interview took place actually in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament building. Unlike the United States, in Israel, the reporters, at least from major news outlets, such as the Jerusalem Post, where Gil Hoffman, today's guest, is a longtime senior reporter. In the Knesset, they have their own press wing. And so Gil files his reports almost exclusively from that building, from that office. He told me that he's rarely in the Jerusalem Post headquarters and actually is almost exclusively there at the Knesset, if not out on assignment. In addition to his career as a journalist, Gil is also a renowned speaker on general affairs for Israel. He speaks almost daily for birthright groups. And as you'll hear in this interview, he recently completed his total tour of the United States, having finally spoken in the 50th state there over his longtime speaking career as well. So a real treat to speak with an icon in the journalism community covering the land of Israel and its endlessly intriguing political affairs. Jerusalem Post senior reporter from the Knesset, Gil Hoffman. We are here with Gil Hoffman, senior political correspondent and analyst for the Jerusalem Post. Did I get that right, Gil? I'm now the only political correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, but I'm senior that they can't take away. You know what? Who said senior had to be a relative term? I don't think it was a statement of your age. Um, We are actually sitting here as part of the Israel Podcast live tour in the bowels of the Knesset. Amazingly enough, the Knesset, I discovered today, actually has a wing for journalists, which is really cool. And uh, Gil's office is here, and uh, this is where he does his work. Uh, Gil, how long have you been doing this here at the Knesset? 20 years. 20 years at the Knesset, wow. It's almost the Gil Hoffman wing, I would imagine, at this point, just about. Uh, So Gil, what we like to do on this program is really take things back to the beginning um, and get a sense of, of course, what you're doing now, but really to get a a real context uh, and understand where that's all coming from, so tell us a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, and so forth. Well, I was made in America with all Israeli parts. <laughs> Both of my parents are Israeli. My mother was born in Jerusalem in January 1948, which makes her Palestinian. Wow. Uh, and she just got in under the gun there. Exactly. Uh, under the gun, literally. There was fighting going on right around her when she was born. Um, my father was born to two Holocaust survivors. Uh, in uh, the Czech Republic, or at least it is now, and uh, made Aliyah with his parents uh, at the age of three. Um, and uh, they met in the army. And they went to America for a year, which became another year and another year and another year. But I was raised in a very Israeli home, watching a lot of news from Israel in my crib, 
Maybe if I would have been watching cartoons, I'd be a healthier person today. Uh, but it made me who I am and prepared me for life. Well, where in America did you guys live? In Chicago. Okay. Which part? In Skokie area? Yeah, yeah, right, right around there in Lincolnwood, yeah. Cool. And uh, in Chicago saying next year, next year, next year about when you're going back to Israel, that uh, is seen as a reasonable thing uh, until recently when it comes from the World Series and now we don't say next year anymore. Shana <laughs> Abba. Did you grow up a big Cubs fan? Was that? I did, a man of Amuna, of faith, uh, being a Cubs fan. Blind uh, faith, perhaps. Exactly. It, make, it makes you a believer. Wait, um, and your parents spoke to you Hebrew growing up, like your Hebrew was, was that the, the language of the, you know, of the house? Or? We grew up speaking Hebrew and English in the same sentence, which is the official language of Israel, so it uh, works out very well. There we go. Well, what brought your parents to Chicago? Why did they leave to begin with? My father wanted to study television production because Israel did not have television yet. And he wanted to help bring it to Israel. Wow. So instead he ended up bringing it to America or giving he it to America. He brought Israel to America and he taught Hebrew in uh, public high schools and college for uh, 40 years. Well, Hebrew was a course in public high school there? Yes. Was that only in like the predominantly Jewish neighborhoods? Yes, in Skokie. Yes. In Skokie, okay. Very cool. Um, and did they send you to a Jewish day school? I went to Ida Crown Jewish Academy for high school. Uh, the Aces? Yes, indeed. I never forget, they, uh, we played them in a basketball tournament, and I'll never forget they would have this, when you were taking foul shots, and then whenever they would, they had this whole cheer, they would go, Ace! That was like their big chant over and over. Well, I put out, uh, as the editor of the high school paper, the Crown Prince, I put out a program for our big uh, annual basketball game against the Yeshiva, uh, our uh, rivals, and that was glossy like Sports Illustrated and everything, and uh, we actually made money uh, on uh, that program. Are you serious? <laughs> you sold it? or We sold copies of that. We, we made ads that did very well. So uh, I really showed uh, that got me really in, even more into journalism. That's cool. And by the way, you brandished your Chicago credentials well because you called it the yeshiva, exactly. which is what everyone calls the Skokie. No one says yeshiva in Chicago. It's always yeshiva. Um, so you mentioned you had an early penchant for journalism. How early did that begin, and what do you think sort of caused that? Caring about the news, you know. Uh, Growing up as an Israeli in America, you really do care about the news and realize that it's more exciting than anything on TV, funnier than any comedy, and more dramatic than any drama, and more reality than any reality show. Did you feel sort of disconnected from what was going on in Israel and as a child and kind of wanted to well, to write about it as a way of getting yourself closer to it? Or? I wanted to live in Israel and I wanted to be a part of it. and. A uh, degree in journalism is a practical degree that helps you uh, be able to work in Israel pretty quick. So you knew right away or as you were growing up that even if your parents kept saying one more year, that for you it was going to be something concrete? Was that, was that a clear Spending agenda? Spending a year between high school and college in Israel, which was the year 95, 96, when a lot was happening here politically. So you heard when Rabin was assassinated? Correct. Wow. Uh, that was a very intense year for Israel. And I was reading the Jerusalem Post every day on, on the one-year uh, program that I was on, learning Torah. And I uh, was addicted to it. And uh, the summer between my junior and senior year at Northwestern, where I was studying journalism. Great, great journalism school. 
uh, Mike Greenberg went there and all the uh, many sports uh, broadcasters? Uh, I got a, an internship at The Post where I really showed them what I could do and I pretty much had a job waiting for me when I made Aliyah in September 1999 and um, I then got promoted to covering politics about a year later uh, in, an, in the midst of an election between Ariel Sharon, who's here on the wall, and Ehud Barak and uh, since then I haven't gotten much sleep. <laughs> it's been a long, long, uh, intense journey. So you had a really kind of focused and, and clear sort of professional trajectory. I've had the same job for 18 years uh, and the same car. Amazing. We will try not to jinx it. Yeah. Um, what appeals to you about journalism? It's, is, it, is it just that, that real life drama unfolding, like you said? Is it, do, do you feel like it gives you access in a way that you, know, that you wouldn't otherwise have? And is that what's attractive to you? Like what, what about it is, is animating for you? Ari, I have a front row seat to watch history as it happens from my office right over here. Uh, I've been there when uh, very exciting decisions have been made that changed Israel forever. I've gotten to write that rough draft on history that people read every day. It's a very big honor. Wow, incredible, incredible. So I, w I would imagine your Hebrew knowledge early on was, and throughout, has been a, an important Part of that, do you think that you could have done this job without that level of fluency? Absolutely not. Uh, Hebrew is extremely important here. We, you know, we have summer interns this summer, and uh, the one who came in knowing Hebrew was here with me every other day, being helpful, whereas the others got a nice tour. <laughs> got it. So it's, for those aspiring journalists, at least in Israel, uh, you gotta, gotta know your Hebrew. Um, so let's take you back, Gil, you know, towards the beginning of that career and walk me through some of the really interesting or seminal events that you have been privileged to cover. Um, and I'm sure there have obviously been tragedies as well that you've had to cover, difficult periods, wars, and, and all kinds of things. But you came here as, a, as, it sounds like, right out of college, pretty much straight to the Knesset beat uh, within a year or so. Um, and as you said, having this front row seat to history. Um, so what have been some of the really interesting um, events that you've gotten to report on over the years? Well, when I made Aliyah two days before Rosh Hashanah, I said to myself, I don't want to be out of Israel for another Jewish holiday, because Jewish holidays are, are so much better here than they are anywhere else in the world. And uh, then for Passover, I ended up being in Greece because... Uh uh, the Israeli basketball team, Maccabi Tel Aviv, had made the European Basketball Championships for the first time in a, in a long time. And so the, they, I went to cover that final four, uh, which was right around the time of the Seder, then the night before uh, Seder night. Wow. And then had an, a fascinating Seder in several languages at the home of the chief rabbi, of that city, Saloniki, which is a city where uh, a higher percentage of Jews were assassinated or killed dur during the Holocaust than uh, any other city in Europe. Incredible. Um, and uh, here were the Israelis coming and, and facing off against the Greeks in the finals in Greece. Too bad it wasn't on Hanukkah, that's all I can tell you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the, the revenge did happen, which is that the Greek team won but the star player of the Greek team that won, that scored the shots, that won the game, was the former star of Maccabi Tel Aviv, Oded, no way. Oded Katash, who then, within two months, broke a leg and never played basketball ever again. 
Uh, so he, he learned his lesson or he got his got what was coming to him. God works in strange ways. Who were some of the stars on that Israeli team? Nate Huffman and Ariel McDonald, neither of them Jewish. <laughs> McDonald's. Good, yeah, yeah, good. Uh, one of them uh, black and the other one uh, very, very not Jewish. Wow, <laughs> that's great. So that's, that sounds like an awesome. So that must have been before you were covering the Knesset, obviously. Yeah, in, in your first whatever. Year. The young kids, they make do whatever they want. Sounds like a de- not, not too bad of a punishment. Not too bad. Um, so, okay, so then what, what other uh, major events were there? Look, uh, I'm also in the spokesman's unit of the Army. Um, so, uh, as a part of my reserve duty, I was in Gaza as we withdrew. Uh, I was uh, sent there among uh, many people in the spokesman's unit to work together uh, with the journalists. Um, we got there. And I had to find a journalist, and the first one I found uh, was Kevin Pereno from Newsweek, who uh, was my classmate at Northwestern a few, wow. just a few years before. That's cool. Um, so we slept together in a tent. Uh, and uh, I took around a reporter from the New York Times and a reporter from Fox, uh, who, uh, strangely enough, are married. Interesting. Opposites attract. Strange bell- bedfellows, yeah. Exactly. What, did you notice a difference in the way that these respective people were covering things, like their different approaches? Not that I know of, um, but uh, when they have the anniversary reports of the withdrawal from Gaza, of the disengagement, um, they always put a clip of a woman holding her baby in front of the eyes of the soldiers that were about to evacuate their family. Right. And you, they, when they play this clip, you hear in the background the translation into English. Uh, look at this baby's eyes. You will never forget the look of this baby's eyes. And that's my voice. Wow. And so it's always very powerful when I hear that back. And, and that relates back to here. Because the one article that I've written in 20 years of writing for the Jerusalem Post that I purposely keep on the wall uh, surrounded by pictures of, of my adorable family um, is Sharon Colon Al Keep Gush Katif <laughs> from January 17th, 2001. Uh, the withdrawal happened in uh, August of uh, 2015. Um, he meant he'll keep it for, for the time being. <laughs> well, he is the one who did that evacuation. Yeah. And so this article is there here on the wall to remind me each and every day as I'm writing my articles about what the politicians are saying that politicians lie. And I have to always keep that in mind that you know all those politicians that are there on the wall, I can't take too seriously anything they say. So do you, as they're, when you're reporting, do you, do you always kind of take things with a grain of salt? Do you, are you ever conscious of the fact that you may be being, for lack of a better term, used at any given moment? Of course, we're always being used. Yeah. That's why we're here. Um, 120 people want to get their message out. Uh, we're the way that they sort of still do it, though Facebook right. and Twitter allows them to bypass us lately. Yes. I think it was Sivan Rahab Meir who I, who I interviewed who said, I believe it was her, who said that in the old days the Knesset members and similar sort of you know politicians and figures would be chasing down the journalists because that was their portal to the world and now they no longer really need them to the same degree. I, I guess there are still advantages to the media for them, but 
Um, have you seen a change in that regard? Absolutely, Ari. I'm old enough to remember when a press conference uh, was intended for the press. Uh, now Netanyahu gets information from uh, the Mossad in Iran, and he still calls it a press conference when it's really the making of a YouTube video uh, that they are nice enough to let the press come to but not ask anything. Got it. So they really changed their posture towards the press since they've had this direct access to the people. Exactly. But look, they still do need us. You know, we have a lot of people that get their news through us still, thank God. Right, right. You know, I'm so curious going back to that story in Gaza. Mm -hmm. um, and, and generally speaking, that you're functioning as a spokesman for the army. Mm -hmm. How does that role relate to or contrast with your role as a journalist? Because a journalist is kind of seen as this, at least in the ideal sense, a dispassionate critic keeping you know, the institutions of power honest. And here, as a spokesman, you are a microphone for, you know, for the institution of power. You are broadcasting their message as opposed to reporting their message, criticizing it, analyzing it. Are those two very different kinds of roles? The, the reason why it's not that big a, a difference is because we weren't supposed to say why. All right. Who, what, when, and where. Just like a journalist. Um, facilitating people around the world finding out the truth of what was happening. So uh, couldn't purposely not becoming involved uh, emotionally in a very emotional place and letting the people decide for themselves based on having that information whether this is a painful thing or a necessary thing. Right. But I guess, I mean, just by definition though, what, what you choose to cover as a journalist, right, itself speaks volumes. So, I mean, if you, could, you read the Gaza coverage, different outlets obviously have different emphases and, and spins on things, even just quote unquote reporting the facts. So, um, you know, for let, let's say would a someone who identifies as a left-wing journalist, right, or their in their personal lives are more left-wing, would they have a difficulty being quote unquote a spokesman for the army? Um, do you think it's only because you? Why not? No, uh, the IDF is the one institution that unites Israelis, regardless of their race, religion, creed, and uh, points of view on and every political issue that exists. And uh, if someone expresses a political point of view while they're in the army, uh, they get to sent to their superiors and even put on trial for it and punished. Wow. Um, so it's beautiful that you can have a, a uniter. And we want Israel to be a uniter for American right. Jews. It's interesting because during the disengagement, I would imagine that uh, you probably were not a huge fan of that policy. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But is, is that difficult to be, again, a sort of a spokesman, a mouthpiece, if you will, for the, for the IDF when it's doing something as much like a soldier, you know, might be having to function in that capacity and really disdaining what's going on? How do you sort of reconcile that? Um, a journalist has to be a soldier of objectivity, Art. Uh, and uh, we've learned that it's possible. Um, don't let anyone tell you that objectivity doesn't exist anymore. It has to. Um, I'm a news reporter. I, I don't write opinion pieces. I never have. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and so it's not my place to think of what my opinion would be about a particular policy of the government of Israel. 
Um, I can explain it in news and I can explain it uh, when I get interviewed regularly by Al Jazeera and CNN and others and uh, I can help other journalists explain it when I'm in the reserves. So then it's, it's interesting because, you know, journalists, I want to drill down on that a little bit because you, you make the case that, that objectivity is still strong. Do you, do you think that it's weaker than it once was? I didn't say it's strong, I said it still okay. exists. It still exists. So do you think it exists in, in, to a lesser degree than it used to? Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, because I mean, so much news is politicized now, right? I mean, the way they, people go to Fox or they go to MSNBC, they go, you know, they, they come through a particular avenue as opposed to kind of, uh, you know, they expect to hear a certain slant on things, don't they? Uh, yes. And in Israel, we don't have MSNBC and I, I don't think we have CNN. As far as I know, uh, I work out at the gym downstairs in this building in the Knesset and uh, Fox is channel 200 and I'm not aware of another American news channel available here, but also here, uh, the media outlets, Yisrael Hayom is the top circulation Hebrew newspaper and it is a pro Netanyahu paper and everybody knows it. Yediyot Akronot is the second largest circulation newspaper in Israel and everybody knows that it's uh, an anti-Netanyahu newspaper. And then when it comes to the English, uh, there's not necessarily a stance on Netanyahu himself. Uh, the Jerusalem Post is a patriotic pro-Israel paper, neither right-wing nor left-wing, patriotic. Uh, whereas Haaretz is very proud to be the opposite of that. So then how do you personally maintain that level of objectivity? How do you make sure that that takes place? And is it difficult? Because you, you know, you're a human being, obviously. You're a private citizen as well with opinions and with uh, your own beliefs. So how do you maintain that sort of distinction? I'm a human being raising six kids. <laughs> and so you're too busy to have opinions? <laughs> no, no. I, that in order to feed them, it depends on objectivity. Uh, you know, uh, that bag over there says that I'm a geopolitical speaker for birthright. Well, you know, birthright is a 10-day trip. They only have one geopolitical speaker on that 10-day trip. Uh, imagine if there wasn't pro-Israel objectivity uh, within internal Israeli issues. Um, then you'd have to have a right-wing speaker and a left-wing speaker and an ultra-Orthodox speaker and an Arab speaker and a gay speaker and a gay ultra-Orthodox Arab speaker. And uh, then they're not doing any hiking or seeing anything. Well, in fact, anymore. you know, there are recently with the birthright walkouts and so forth, there have been people, you know, clamoring for more of that wide, you know, wide range of, of opinions. Well, you very many programs give you opinions and birthright's not supposed to, and that's great. And uh, I'm not supposed to either. Right. So you don't find it difficult when you're, let's say, watching a Knesset debate unfold and you're in your own personal opinion, you know, one side is so demonstrably, clearly superior or, or correct or whatever, you just kind of create a, a, a separation of church and state, so to speak, if you will, uh, in, in terms of your personal professional. That, and you just can, that is what we're trained to do, my friend. Yeah. Well, it sounds like something, uh, I think it's a lost art to a large degree. Uh, I think a lot of people would, would, would say that it's a lost uh, art nowadays, at least in America. Maybe it's more common here in Israel. Supposed to be. Supposed to be. <laughs> I mean, so what are some of the other major political events that have taken place? You mentioned the disengagement, which was obviously a huge um, sort of cataclysmic shift in, in Israeli and one, politics. One thing on that, but uh, just giving people behind the scenes over here, Arl Sharon did not like speaking in, in the actual plenum 
upstairs because so when you're there, you're speaking, the other Knesset members are heckling you and screaming at you. Um, it's not pleasant. Sharon, when he had an important announcement to make, he made it in the Knesset cafeteria. In the cafeteria? Yep, yep. No heckling there? Nope. Uh, there he would speak directly to the press. We would gather around him and talk to him for hours. He spent hours and hours in that room, which did not do very well for his health. He was a very, very large man. That maybe explains it. Right. And uh, got to learn all about history from him. Um, and so when he decided to go to a referendum inside his Likud party on withdrawing from Gaza, he announced that he would be doing that with his mouth full of couscous and yellow sauce dribbling down the corner of his mouth. <laughs> it's just sort of a uh, incongruent type of uh, image when he's announcing such a drastic thing. Seems kind of cavalier uh, in a certain way, but uh, I guess that's Israeli politics. Um, it's interesting that the politicians couldn't heckle him in the cafeteria. No. Why didn't they just follow him there? No, 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 no. In the cafeteria, the Jews and the Arabs who were screaming at each other in the plenum five minutes later are eating lunch and telling jokes together. I've heard that before, that, that really behind the scenes there's a lot of uh, you know, a, a sort of a fraternity that exists. Is, is that really the case? Absolutely. Ahmed Tibi is a really funny guy, and people sit in with him in the cafeteria and tell jokes with him, and then they're arguing with him again in the plenum. In the end, everybody knows it's all a game. Do you think that it extends outside the Knesset walls? Like people have, do they have personal relationships with each other? Absolutely. Go to each other's bar mitzvahs and things like that? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, uh, the man who's now president, Ruben Rivlin, was at my uh, daughter's uh, baby naming, and she has a bat mitzvah coming up. Um, so uh, yeah, we, we, people here uh, become friends on a personal level, even even politicians in the press, that happens too. Interesting. Interesting. But that doesn't get in the way of reporting either. Right. We write negative things about our friends every day. And I guess they have thick skin. They, oh absolutely, and then they know we're going to do it again, yeah. Right. Um, so you've, you've spent a lot of years, I guess, covering uh, Mitanyahu, which has been, uh, you know, he's been in power how many years now? Is it 12 years or something like that? Uh, three plus nine, correct. Three plus nine, okay. So, What's that been like? Is he, is he have a, does each leader have kind of a different style vis-a-vis uh, -vis what it means to cover them as a member of the press? And, and how do you kind of adapt and adjust? Oh, absolutely. Look, uh, Ariel Sharon, Shimon Perez loved talking to the media. Uh, they were in that cafeteria all the time. Perez, you couldn't tell. Like, he was amazing. He could eat without anything sticking on him, uh, all uh, skin and bones. Uh, but um, Eud Olmert didn't like the press. He came into the cafeteria only twice in the, the short period of time that he was prime minister. They were both days in retrospect. We found out that Israel took uh, very daring security steps that he wanted credit for and came in and smiling and nobody knew why, but now we know. Interesting. Uh, one was when we attacked the Syrian nuclear facility. Right. And one was when Israel attacked a terrorist named Mabchuch uh, in um, Qatar and uh, he's not with us anymore. Um, and so the Netanyahu never comes into the cafeteria. I, I remember him coming in once in recent years. Uh, he does not like to be around the press at all. He assumes that we're all out to get him. Huh, so surprising because there are outlets that are pro Netanyahu and he's also, I think, inarguably the most eloquent of the, you know, of the above named Leader, certainly in English, I, I can't speak for Hebrew. Sure, in Hebrew as well. But uh, 
he gets his message out the way he wants to. Uh, and uh, he can't do small talk. There are politicians who uh, speak beautifully on TV and in large crowds and can't do small talk. And there are politicians who can make you feel very special when you're with them and then can't deliver on TV or to large crowds. So uh, Sharon and Netanyahu would be opposites in that regard. Huh. That uh, Sharon would take out a, a little notebook. It looks very much like a reporter's notebook that I have here in my hand and, and write down uh, what you're telling him and, and he would make you feel special that way. But when one time he was on TV doing a live address and at the end he was caught at the end saying the words news and igmalkfa, uh, is it over yet? <laughs> while, while they hadn't cut off yet. Um, live mic. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, Netanyahu, one time I interviewed him when he was finance minister, right after the Phillies had won the World Series. And I, uh, Netanyahu grew up in, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Right? Uh, and I said to him, Mazel Tov, Bibi, uh, on the Phillies running the World Series, and he answered something about Iran. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's not much of a schmoozer. No, he doesn't know how. He doesn't have that personal touch, kind of. Do you thing. think that's a specifically with the press, or do you think that's a general characterization in his own? It's a general characterization that he doesn't hold on to friends, um, but with the press, it's obviously much more intense. His uh, um, obsession with um, um, keeping distance from them and, and them just assuming that they're all against him, like a paranoia. Are, are there paranoia. any? Are there any like one or two reporters that are kind of? His guys, or he has no. like nobody. No, no one. No. Huh. So interesting. You would imagine usually someone would have like their go-to person to kind of. Yeah, a lot of politicians do. See their messaging and things like that. Not him. Interesting. Do you do you in your own career effort to try to be, kind of become that person for certain politicians, and how do you go about ingratiating yourself in that way again without like compromising your objectivity? No, I mean all of them. They, they want to speak to the English media. They they want the world to get a message out that, that they're trying to say uh, that they know to come to me. You know, I remember one time Ezra Weitzman when, when he was the president and I was covering him and he grabbed me aside from the other reporters by the ear, dragged me, <laughs> ow, uh, and uh, told me write this down because I know that uh, Mubarak reads your paper and he doesn't read Yodiyoda Chronot. Huh. So we have a different role than uh, then, uh, yeah, the Yodach Renault, which the, their uh, target audience might be a vendor in the Shuk. Right. Uh, our target audience is the people in the White House, and, and people know it. I was going to ask you about that. What, what's different about being a reporter for an English language newspaper, and specifically, I guess you would say, the English language newspaper of Israel, uh, the, the paper of record in that regard? Um, you're funneling information to a, a totally different demographic. Totally. And I, and I guess. Does that change the way that you do your job? And does that change the way that those feeding you information are doing their job? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, you're, as a journalist, you're supposed to think about who your target reader is. And if mine is a Christian woman in Mississippi, uh, because the majority of our readers are Christians and the majority of our really? readers are women, uh, then... Um, and the majority no. of them are in Mississippi? Or? No, no, not in particular. But uh, I've been there and spoken there for, um, that's very different than my colleagues over here in, the, in this wing and, and the politicians um, 
they realize that I'm not going to bring them too many votes. Uh, I don't have too many readers in Afula. Right. Uh, but uh, they want to get out a message to the leaders of the world, then I'm the one to do it to, or to their donors for that matter, which they just changed the law and now they don't really get donors from America anymore. Which oh, is they can't accept foreign donations? They can't accept any donations. Uh, they really, now that they're getting party funding from the state for their, for their primaries. Huh. The, the people running for a leader of a party, they can still get donations. Uh, in which case the uh, election for leader of Likud is going to be very interesting next time we have one. So Bibi doesn't get funds from uh, Sheldon Adelson and all these people? To, uh, well, Sheldon puts out a newspaper that's very much a right. propaganda tool for him. But, uh, you know, if, if you're talking about um, the family uh, that owns uh, Duty Free America uh, that were the biggest funders of Netanyahu for decades, they're not as needed as they used to be. Wow. I wonder how that curtails or changes their level of access. And mm-hmm. Their, their experience. Um, what, I, I know that, you, you know, obviously as a journalist, you've had you know, this wonderful perch to report and, and do some, you know, incredible uh, things in that regard. What other kinds of endeavors uh, are you involved with? You said, I think you do I a lot of speaking and things like I that. I have a radio show on the, the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that. Uh, you know, we we had a, a network called Voice of Israel that lasted for a little bit. That was uh, we? a pleasure. Uh, Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel and Ishai Fleischer and Eve Harrow and Josh Haston and myself and others. And uh, now we're on uh, this network, that, the Land of Israel, that was created by Ari and Jeremy. And what is that network all about? What's the what's the idea? Love of Israel. Love of Israel. Got it. Um, so they have. Is it radio shows? Is it television? Like, what's the? the these are radio. We call them radio shows in part because on the la- on Voice of Israel they were twenty four seven, twenty four six, I believe. Um, but uh, it's podcasts. These are podcasts, so they're they're pre recorded, and you drop podcasts of different. And it's basically a podcast network, basically of and sort of associated or affiliated shows. Yeah, and and I also teach college at the top uh, communications college in Israel, which is the College of Management in Rishon Lezion. Cool. And I've spoken, uh, I speak to groups almost every day uh, from America uh, through tour groups and things like that and tell them what's going on behind the scenes over here. And I've spoken in 12 countries and last November became the first speaker to speak for money about Israel any, uh, in all 50 states. All 50 states? Correct. In Hawaii. That's incredible. That's my last one. Well, see, you've been to Montana, and I'm trying to think of some of the most obscure... Absolutely. Chabad of Montana. Rabbi Brooke is an amazing man. <laughs> there we go. With a Bozeman, lot of, right? In Bozeman. A lot of meat in his freezer. I recommend you have him on your show. The, the largest meat freezer in America. Uh, you know, he asked it. So basically, groups will bring you in to speak uh, in all different places, usually Jewish groups, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Campuses and... Uh, a lot of work to be done over there. Yeah, absolutely. What, what's been your experience on campus? I, I mean, I, you know, I work on a college campus, so I can share my experiences. But from your vantage point, what have you seen on college campuses? That the pro-Israel groups are more successful than ever. Uh, they're empowered more than ever. Uh, they're getting out Israel's message proactively and reactively about Israel beyond the conflict and Israel within the conflict. Uh, they're fighting back and giving it the fight. And uh, I think that they're very positive approach uh, resonates more with college students than the negativity uh, that the anti-Israel groups on campuses have. Huh. Um, and I hope that that creates uh, a positive impression 
on these impressionable, undecided people for the future. Have you gotten heckled or? Of course. Or <laughs> no, <laughs> tell me, tell me a story or two about that. Like, you know, Wayne State in Detroit. Yeah, lot, sure. A lot, a lot of Arabs over yes. there. And they did a whole thing. Uh, what do they do? They'll, 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 yeah, they they'll block your entrance or what? Yeah, like? yeah, they'd protest outside and they heckled inside. And um, I had a college in Chicago called Benedictine. It's a Catholic school. Doesn't sound Jewish, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And you had uh, 200 people in the crowd. And, and uh, when 190 of them get up and walk out, Ooh. you know, whatever, they bust in. They left you a minion, at least. Exactly. <laughs> they, they bust in Muslim high school kids, is what they do in Chicago. You know, they're, they're not really college students. Right. Um, Northwestern, my alma mater, when, yeah. when I spoke there, it was pretty funny that you had to walk out of about 50 people considering that they paid $10 to get in. Ooh. You know, 500 bucks just flushed down the toilet. And, that year, the ADL put out uh, their report on what's going on in college campuses, and they wrote that if a relatively par speaker like Gil Hoffman is facing walkouts, then there must be a problem, because I'm not exactly fire and brimstone. Right. When you go to these campuses, are you, again, kind of just down the middle giving the fact, or in those environments do you allow yourself to it's a, it's a editorialize a little it's more? It's a pro-Israel perspective. I'm okay. not giving internal Israeli politics of what's right and wrong, what I cover, uh, but I, I'm defending Israel. Right, right. And so do people get up and challenge you and do they do it vociferously? Sure, What's... I can handle any question. Go for it. <laughs> you ready Ready for battle? Bring it on. You know, I'm, I'm an Al Jazeera. Sometimes it's uh, three Arabs on me. And I, I What's that like? How does that work out? It's fun. I get to explain Israel's point of view. And, uh, you know, uh, just last week, nation state law, after it passed, uh, I was on there and uh, explaining the what's going on. You know, I asked them uh, if you're saying that this is apartheid. Uh, how many uh, Jewish members of parliament are there in your Arab countries? You know, we have our 18 uh, non-Jews in, in our parliament over here. Do you get a sense when you go on something like Al Jazeera that you have the ability to make an impact? I mean, you must have a reason for going on. You don't want to just be this kind of patsy. Um, do you ever get feedback like? some out from out there in the Arab world like hey Gil you know secretly I, I believe I agree with you I, I heard you on a lot of mid the hate mail Twitter you know they put your, your Twitter handle on the screen you get a lot of negative things and then you get your positive too right and when it comes to the Jerusalem Post you know you get hate mail on the right and on the left and that shows that you're doing something right right yeah I just I just wonder if like you have ever have a sense of faith or optimism that that you can get a message out to regular, you know, sort of man on the street in the Arab world. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, uh, Al Jazeera, for all the negative things it does in terms of being a, a very biased uh, news source against Israel, at least they give the Israeli point of view, and sometimes I'm the one who has the honor of doing it, and because of that, it, uh, your average person on the street is finding out the truth that the Jews don't have horns. Right. Or they, or the Al Jazeera has very good makeup. And they <laughs> Hiding the horns. Hiding the horns. No, they don't um, have any makeup at all. <laughs> what are some of the major issues going on today? The makeup and makeup and Fox is very impressive. There you go. <laughs> Those women don't really look like that. That's okay. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> what are some of the major hot button issues going on right now as we stand here, summer of 2018 in Israel? You mentioned something about a nation state law. Yeah, what are some of the big issues? First time in 70 years. Israel decided what it means to be a Jewish nation state, of, uh, the nation state of the Jewish people. Astounding, isn't it? 
Sure, and uh, a lot of people didn't like what that law says. Which is what? Um, it says that the flag of Israel is blue and white. <laughs> it says that Hebrew is the official language. As opposed to? As opposed to, there never was a law that actually said Hebrew is the, in Arabic are both official languages, but you had the British mandate said that, uh, and uh, con Israel passed a law of continuity of uh, British law immediately so that there would be law when we started out here. Um, so there are people who are upset that the bill doesn't say equality, doesn't say democracy. There are other bills that are supposed to say that, but don't quite say that either. Interesting. So that's kind of the big conversation going on today. Um, big picture, Gil, what are sort of your, your greatest concerns for the state of Israel right now? Kind of what are the things that keep you up at night? Um, besides your, your six kids, or whichever ones of them still <laughs> stay up at night, you know, what are the major uh, issues that you see facing you know, from your really unique perspective, getting a, a, an inside look constantly at what's going on and the inner chambers of, of power here? You know, being here, you actually rest easier because you realize that they mean well. They really do want to make this country better. And I think that the, it's like the opposite of the hot dog factory. You know, the hot dogs taste yummy, and, but if you see what's going on in the hot dog factory, it, it's a little bit less appetizing. Right. Whereas here, it, you know, a lot of what goes on here, I could understand, make people throw up wherever they are on the political map on a given day. Whereas when you're here and you're seeing what's in that kishki, uh, I think that the, it actually is more palatable. So you feel that you, your, your position gives you a greater sense of optimism? I believe so. What are some of the future projects that you want to work on? Uh, I mean, you've been doing the same job for, you said, 18 years, Chai. Um, I guess I was going to say maybe it's a monotonous kind of thing to have the same job, but I'm, I, would, I would guess you'd respond that it's entirely not monotonous because the landscape that you're covering is constantly changing. So it's almost like having a different job every day for 18 years. Uh, would you agree with that? Or? Every day is different. Every day is exciting. Um, look, for a while, the goal was speaking in that 50th state, and then I did that, and okay. What's the next frontier? My daughter's bat mitzvah. <laughs> Basel tough on that. Do you, do you feel like there's things that you, uh, projects that you want to uh, affect, or things that you want to accomplish from this position as a journalist uh, that you haven't yet been able to? I'm still figuring that out. Um, I just, uh, through cutbacks in the newspaper, I'm now covering uh, legislation in the Knesset as well. For many years we had a parliamentary correspondent who did that while I covered just the behind the scenes and now I'm doing both of those jobs. I'm sure for a significant raise. <laughs> very, very funny. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, five dollars, there's a thing that you, when you open up articles in the Jerusalem Post now that ask you for five dollars. Click on it. Give them the five bucks. Let print newspapers continue to exist. Yeah. Uh, click on those ads. They pay for my children's food. There we go. Do you, do you feel like the newspaper industry is, at least the pr in print, is really, um, its days are really numbered? Or you think there still is a place for that medium? I don't know about America, Ari. Here, there is something called Shabbat. Right. And even though only 20% of Israelis consider themselves Orthodox, 
There's another 50% who consider themselves traditional, which could mean anything. And, and uh, those 70% of the people, uh, they're not going to take uh, uh, an iPad and, uh, and open up news on Shabbat. Uh, but taking a, a stack of newspapers to the beach, well, that's restful. Interesting. And also, Israel's different than the rest of the world, and then more news happens here. And so you really need that rough draft on history every 24 hours to put things into perspective, and, the, and then the, the twice as much on a, on a Friday before Shabbat, uh, just like the manna <laughs> that the Jewish people had. Double dose of Gilhoffman on Fridays. To, to last you know, until Sunday, yeah. Wow. There's a miracle on our doorstep every day when the, the print paper comes. Makes me either want to say uh, Shechianu or Hagomel, depending on the, how the day went the day before. There you go. Well, God willing, we should have many more occasions for the Shechianus, for the happy and, and positive news reports. And uh, thank you, Gil Hoffman, for being the one to bring them to us so consistently. Where can people find you online? Uh, give us all the different uh, platforms uh, I'm for you. Gil, Gil underscore Hoffman on Twitter. That's probably the best way to follow me. Facebook, it's just to see cute pictures of my kids. And uh, jpost.com. Click on any article. And if you ever need a speaker in your community, uh, now that I've done all 50, I can go back to you places. Time for the, uh, the double up. Yeah. No, it doesn't really matter anymore. So uh, if you ever need a positive perspective in your com uh, on Israel and your community or college campus about what's going on, behind the scenes over here, um, gil at jpost.com, gilhoffman at yahoo.com, writegilhoffman at gmail.com. If you can't find me online, you shouldn't be on the internet. <laughs> if you can't find him online, then, then you've got a lot bigger problems than, than trying to contact Gil Hoffman. Gil Hoffman, Jerusalem Post senior reporter and analyst. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.